Jesus' time in the wilderness was a time of preparation as well as a time of testing. And as we noted last week, his temptations were related to the direction his ministry would take. Once that was settled, it was time to begin. And Mark presents the beginning of Jesus' ministry with these words. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now we've previously noted how Mark loves to use the word immediately to tie things together and keep the narrative running. He's already used it twice and will use it six more times in the first chapter. But he doesn't use it here, and for good reason. There's a one-year gap between the events of verse 13 and 14. And Mark leaves room for it by saying, and after John had been taken into custody... Now, that did not happen immediately after Jesus' baptism and the temptations. For nearly a year, John continued to preach a message of repentance, calling Jews to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. During that year, Jesus began his ministry. And for a time, he and his disciples continued John's call for Jews to repent and be baptized. Now, obviously, other things were said and done by Jesus during that year. But the only record we have of them is from the Apostle John. In fact, that first year of Jesus' ministry has been called his year of obscurity. Because he was not well known during that time and we know so little about what he did. But thanks to John, we do know that during this time, Jesus worked his first miracle in Cana, turning water into wine. And that he went to Jerusalem where he cleansed the temple. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell of him doing that at the close of his ministry, the last week of his ministry, but only John tells us of the cleansing that took place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as well. John is also the only one to tell us of Jesus' interview with Nicodemus and his encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria on his way to Galilee. And it is John who tells us that during this time, some conflicts arose between John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus' disciples. Now, John addressed his disciples' concerns by making it clear that Christ's ministry was to increase and his was to decrease. And Jesus sought to keep the Pharisees from stirring up rivalry between John's disciples and his by leaving Judea and going into Galilee shortly after John was arrested for publicly accusing Herod of adultery. And now, as Mark noted, 
It was after John was taken into custody that Jesus came into Galilee. When he did so, he moved his base of operation from his hometown of Nazareth to Capernaum, a city on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It was there that Peter and Andrew lived and their family home became Jesus' home during what would be called his great Galilean ministry. It was at the beginning of that ministry that Jesus began preaching the gospel of God, saying that time is fulfilled. And what time might that be? Well, the focal point of all history, of course, the coming of the Lord that John had been heralding and the prophets before him had been proclaiming. The time had come for the Messiah, the Christ of promise to make his appearance on earth. And it was a momentous event. In fact, in coming... He divided time on earth before Christ and after Christ. Now, I do realize that not every culture marks time from the coming of Christ. And sadly, it's even become more PC in our culture to divide history into before the common era or BCE and the common era. But whether someone wants to admit it or not, the coming of Christ is the watershed of all history. Everything before it anticipates it, and everything after it looks back upon it. You know, time began when God created the heavens and the earth. Time will end when Jesus returns. And time was divided into B.C. and A.D., when Jesus came to earth. And as Paul told Titus, his coming, which had been promised long ages ago, was manifested at the proper time. He said the same thing when writing to Timothy, when he said Jesus came to become the mediator between God and men and to give himself and his life as a ransom for all, at the proper time. Paul put it this way when writing to the Romans, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And when writing to the Galatians, he said, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Indeed, it was the right time for Jesus to come. Everything was ready for his coming. The Jewish people were looking for, longing for, the coming of the Messiah. There was widespread spiritual hunger and religious dissatisfaction in the Greco-Roman world. And Pax Romana, the peace that Rome had brought into the civilized world, created an environment in which the gospel could quickly spread using Roman roads and a universally understood language. Indeed, the time was right for Jesus to come, declaring the kingdom is at hand. 
the Jews were expecting the Messiah and anxiously awaiting the coming of his kingdom. The prophet Isaiah had long before declared, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Jews were expecting the Messiah, the one who would sit on the throne of David and reign over his kingdom. What they failed to realize, however, was that the Messianic kingdom would be much different than the kingdom that existed for 40 years when David was on the throne. Now, they were expecting an earthly kingdom. They were longing for a day when they could overthrow the shackles of Rome and once again rule the world from Jerusalem. They somehow missed the fact that Isaiah said the child to be born, the son to be given, would be called Mighty God and Eternal Father, and that his kingdom would be established forevermore. If they didn't get it from Isaiah, they should have gotten it from Daniel. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man's dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's not a temporary, temporal kingdom on earth. It's an eternal, spiritual kingdom that transcends the physical realm. That is the kingdom of God Jesus declared to be at hand when he came preaching the gospel of God. Now, the Pharisees didn't understand it. They questioned him as to when the kingdom of God was coming. And he said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Pilate didn't understand it. When he asked Jesus if he was king of the Jews, he was thinking of a political rival to Rome. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting and that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Even the disciples didn't understand it. James and John, through their mother, asked if they could have the seats of honor on the right and left of Jesus when he established his kingdom. Jesus told them they didn't know what they were asking for. What they had in mind was not what he had come to establish. He came 
to establish a spiritual kingdom that could exist anywhere men of faith lived on earth and that would transcend death itself. The kingdom would find its final glorious fulfillment in eternity. That was the kingdom of God Jesus came declaring to be at hand. Matthew makes its spiritual nature perhaps even clearer when recording the same event, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are used interchangeably. Both phrases describe the spiritual kingdom that Jesus said was at hand and was within the reach of anyone who would repent and believe in the gospel. John called the Jews in the Jordan Valley to repentance. Jesus, as prophesied, carried the message of repentance to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And his call to repentance was continued by the apostles after his ascension into heaven on the day of Pentecost, after receiving power from the Holy Spirit to become witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth, Peter declared, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He continued, that call of repentance in his second recorded sermon. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You know, contrary to what some might believe, the biblical call to repentance is not a pronouncement of doom and condemnation. It's a call to return to God so sins can be forgiven and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The word literally means to change your mind or to perceive afterward, to realize what you're doing is wrong, and you want to do something about it. Repentance is not just being sorry for what you've done, or worse, being sorry that you've been caught, or sorry that the consequences of your actions were worse than you thought they'd be. It's realizing that you have been going away from God and his will for you. And now it's time to return. And the good news that Jesus came preaching and the good news he made possible by his death, burial, and resurrection is that we can come back. We can be forgiven. That's the gospel. Jesus would have us believe. Or, more accurately, according to Mark, the gospel Jesus would have us believe in. 
Interestingly, this is the only place in the New Testament where we are told to believe in the gospel. And Mark said it that way, I think, for a good reason. It's not enough to just believe the gospel, to accept the fact that it's true. Believing something to be true doesn't necessarily mean you act upon it. Now, you can believe vitamins are good for you, but they won't do you any good unless you take them. When Jesus said, believe in the gospel, he was saying, put your trust in it and act upon it. Only then will the good news of God become good news to you. And as Paul told the Corinthians, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is within your reach. If you've not already done so, lay a hold of it today. You don't have to worry about the future. You can secure it today. Repent. Realize that you've been walking away from God, and now is the time to turn around and start heading back to him. Believe in the gospel. Put your trust in the fact that because Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins, he will forgive you. And then express your faith in him. Allow him to wash away your sins in a watery grave of baptism. Now is the time to come back to him. And if you are resolved to hasten to him and to enter the kingdom, even now, don't let anything stand in your way.